The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. It's Wednesday, July 15th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. So our top three stories today are international. On the fourth is interplanetary. Well, interdwarf planet, Terry, not a phrase. Pluto, it might not be a planet, but damn it, it poses for a pretty picture, doesn't it? Can you say that, Ganymede? Can you say that, Callisto? All you other large planetoid-type bodies. Those are both bigger than Pluto, by the way, but Pluto looms large in our consciousness. Pluto gets outsized attention. We're being exposed to a fresh new image of Pluto, and its movements are highly influenced by a more prominent neighbor. It's the Brooklyn of planets. A combo artisanal mayonnaise slash hot yoga store is opening on Pluto. But even despite this, this mix of stories, I still want to bring your attention to a story that is of this world, is an international story. It's just not about Iranian uranium enrichment, European Aegean impoverishment, or drug lord Mexican exodus. In Rwanda, Paul Kagame will run for a third term as president. The Rwandan constitution says a president can only serve two terms. And by the way, those terms are seven years, so that's a lot of Kagame already. But darn it, the parliament just demanded that they let the only post-genocide leader the country's ever known keep doing it. So what's the problem? Seems to be the will of the people. There was a petition. Most people said they wanted this. The parliamentarians are all in favor. Checks, balances, right? Well, consider what has happened to politicians or anyone who opposes Kagame. Freedom House, which rates Rwanda not free, says before the last presidential election, the government prevented new political parties from registering, started arresting the leaders of other parties. The biggest opposition candidate was arrested, was charged with denying genocide, was charged with collaborating with a terrorist group. Then the election came and went and she was released. Opposition party leaders are often fined for supporting divisionism. And then there are the former allies. You break with Kagame, you often wind up dead. One guy, former spy chief, was found strangled to death in a South African hotel. The government didn't admit anything, but the foreign minister tweeted, you expect pity for a, quote, self-declared enemy. And the prime minister noted that betraying one's country brought consequences. So a few opponents of Kagame have wound up dead. Maybe fear of getting on Kagame's bad side is what prompted Bill Clinton to call him, quote, one of the greatest leaders of our time. Tony Blair agrees. U.S. Senator James Inhofe says, quote, I speak on behalf of my fellow senators back home, and I assure you the United States doesn't have a better friend than Kagame. Kagame has done well economically for his country, and they use foreign aid well. And maybe, I doubt it, but maybe there is a case to be made that you needed a strong man in place to shepherd through a functional government after the mass slaughter of the uh, Hutu by the Tutsi. But Rwanda had that strong man. They've had him for 14 years. That's enough. Now his leadership, his continued leadership, is a foregone conclusion. Western acceptance of that leadership is a disgrace. Cheery, right? Okay, on the show today, I spiel about the national debt, so that'll be fun. But first, we owe a debt of gratitude to our next guest, arms control expert, yes, but Jeffrey Lewis, more importantly, runs the greatest arms control podcast there is. (laughs) 
So now is the time that we need to discuss reconverting hexafluoride gases. I hope, I hope so, because joining me now is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. Lots of credentials on this guy. He is an affiliate with the Center for Security and International Cooperation at Stanford. Also, he's the director of the East Asian Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. A lot of credentials. Basically, this guy knows arms control. Hello, Jeffrey. Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm well. And he's looked at the Iran deal, and he told Vox he gives it an A. Explain why. Why an A? There are a lot of countries around the world that, you know, have the ability to build nuclear weapons and, 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 and a few of them that are kind of hedging in that direction. But of all of those problems, this is the most complicated one I could possibly imagine. Uh, and I had no confidence whatsoever that they'd be able to work out a deal because I just thought it was too complicated. And they did it. You know, they, they have a deal that is much, much better than having no deal. And so, you know, it surprised me. So I, I give them an A. It's much better than having no deal because, I mean, this is in, in a nutshell, the president says it pushes the, back their breakout time from three months to a year, a little over a year. Would you agree with that? Breakout time is one of these funny things. So, you know, we have this problem that they have a, 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 a program to enrich uranium using centrifuges. And they, they say that that is for civil purposes, you know, just for nuclear power. But it's like the same technology you would use to build a bomb. And there's, I think, lots of evidence that that's why they started. And so there's this fundamental challenge of like, like, how do you put a barrier between the technological capability that they have and they just have that capability and they, they got the people, they got the know-how, the, the components. Mm -hmm. How do you put a barrier between that and like them actually deciding to go ahead and build a bomb? And I kind of think of that as an air gap. And, you know, so what they did was they put up series of limits on how many centrifuges they could have, what kind of centrifuges they could have, where they could have them, how much material they could uh, accumulate, what kind of research and development they could do. And all of this stuff slows them down. And then there are a bunch of procedures for international inspections, you know, which will never be perfect. But if you imagine that you're the leader of Iran and you think to yourself like, well, if I decide that I'm going to take this capability and I'm going to try to turn it into a bomb, like, will the world figure it out? And, you know, I think the answer is, yeah, probably. I mean, he might be crazy, but yeah. Is it plausible that the centrifuges that will be taken offline are not even all the centrifuges we know about? That they have another underground facility like the Fordo facility that we don't know about and they'll be humming along, enriching uranium, not even with our knowledge? Everybody focuses on breakout, which is this idea that the Iranians are going to take facilities we know about uh, rearrange them and then use those. And, you know, like, I think that's kind of crazy because that's not what they've done, right? They've tried to build facilities in, in secret. And so uh, a friend of mine calls that sneak out. Uh, and I, I think that's the big problem. The reason that I'm a fan of the deal is because it puts into place things that help deal with sneak out. So for example, uh, and this maybe gets kind of boring, but it's like super interesting to me. Under like normal safeguards that the IAE, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the normal safeguards, if you have a workshop where you make the centrifuges, if you put those on a truck and you drive them to a declared facility, then they go under safeguards. Mm -hmm. But you have no way of knowing if they put them on a truck and drive them under a mountain. And this deal actually changes that. So the IAEA will have continuous access to the centrifuge workshops. And so there's a, an actual kind of ability to look not just at the places where the centrifuges are working, but look at the places where they're being built. And so that's the kind of thing 
that I think is like way better than not having any deal at all. So one criticism of the deal is it's a lot like Obamacare. They're both really complicated things. So it's a lot easier to try to appeal to the public. We do live in a democracy. Public opinion will have something to say about this by saying, look, he, the president, proponent of this, you don't know, you don't need to know everything about health care and you don't need to know everything about enriching uranium. But he lied about some things. He said, if you like your health care, you could keep it. Turned out not to be entirely true. And with this deal, he and his people were saying inspections will be anytime, anywhere. Where, and there are conditions to inspections. There have to be some evidence, and we have to tell the Iranians first. Is that a red herring? Is that something he shouldn't have said? You know, how would you address that criticism? Well, you know, it's one of those things that I understand why people react that way, but it's like ultimately my frustration with politicians. And and I know that it's hard. It's very hard to take the kind of language of you know, inspections and wonkery and then translate it into a way that people can understand. Uh, and I'll give you a, a, a classic example. You will often hear the South Africans who gave up their nuclear weapons in the early 1990s. People will say they offered the IAEA anytime, anywhere inspections. And that wasn't actually the, the precise term they use. And even when they summarized it, what they actually would say is anytime, anywhere, within reason. Mm -hmm. It's like, like, what does within reason mean, right? <laughs> Especially when you're dealing with an Ayatollah, like in this situation. It, totally. <laughs> and, and so there are always going to be conditions on inspections because there just have to be procedures. Who gets to do the inspections? How long does Iran have to respond to a request for inspections? What's the procedure for settling a dispute? And so I'm sort of sympathetic to the need to present things in clear, understandable language. You know, I do think that it can give people the wrong idea. This is not like Iraq, where you're dealing with a defeated country. And, you know, by the way, even though on paper we had anytime, anywhere inspections in Iraq, it's, you know, like in real life, we didn't. So, you know, instead of kind of focusing on that, I, I try to ask, like, are the inspections that are envisioned good enough? And, you know, I, I tend to think that they are. Yeah. And by the way, South Africa still has bomb grade uranium and nuclear facilities. Not bomb, but their breakout time is probably shorter than Iran's. Yeah, this is one of these things that makes me crazy when people you sometimes see this with uh, the Libya deal that the Bush administration negotiated. People say like, well, in Libya, we got everything out. And it's like, yeah, that's because they imported it all. And if you actually got that deal in Iran, like let's say the Iranians showed up tomorrow and said, yeah. hey, you know what? Take it all. We give up. And then we said like, oh, well, does that mean we can, you know, have like the new super great inspections? And they said, no, 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 you're taking it all. No need for inspections. And then just kind of smile at you. I'd feel terrible about that deal. So they just, they have an inherent capability. And basically any country that's reasonably developed has that inherent capability. So I tend to think we should really be focused on inspections. And these go like way beyond what countries normally have. So Lindsey Graham says every Republican nominee, with the exception of Rand Paul, this is what Lindsey Graham says, could negotiate a tougher deal. And I believe him. I just don't think the Iranians would have signed whatever imagined tougher deal. But let's play this game. Let's say that... Uh, for whatever, either Iran really thought that Obama was quite willing to go to war, or let's say that in the last couple of years of the Bush administration, uh, given their history of being willing to go to war in the region, they really tried to get a deal. And let's say Iran was negotiating with the idea that, hey, if we ever do get close to a nuclear weapon, we're definitely going to have a bomb dropped on us. How would that have changed things? Yeah, I don't think it would have. I mean, I, I go back to two things. One is that you know, the Bush administration actually 
was around from 2003 to the end of 2008 when this crisis started. So they did have a period to negotiate a better deal, and they didn't. And that was a period when the Iranians actually had a lot less stuff and a lot less leverage. And, you know, even Hassan Rouhani, the president, was for the early period of that negotiation, the lead negotiator. So it's like, well, you guys actually did have your chance and you didn't do anything. But there's another thing, and this kind of gets to my frustration with contemporary American politics. You know, the Clinton administration negotiated this deal with North Korea called the Agreed Framework in 1994. Mm -hmm. And when the Bush administration came in, you know, Governor Bush had trashed it on the campaign trail, but ultimately actually I think was leaning toward keeping it when there was some pretty decent evidence that came in that the North Koreans were cheating. So the Bush administration blew that agreement up and said, like, we're going to negotiate a better deal. And they didn't. You know, they ended up negotiating for a long time, during which time the North Koreans made a bunch of plutonium, during which time the North Koreans tested a nuclear weapon. And then, you know, the Bush administration discovered like, oh, wow, we have like way less leverage. And so the deal they ended up negotiating with North Korea was not nearly as good as the agreed framework. And oh, by the way, that deal collapsed. I know that like Democrats always think that you know people in the world love them more and Republicans always think that they're tougher. But like, it's just not true. You know, I think the deal you get has a lot to do with the big structural factors. And so the idea that you're going to get a better deal because you're tougher, I think, is a little bit crazy. Is there a precedent? I know Libya gave up uh, its nukes, quote unquote, but in the uh, Gaddafi regime teetered and fell soon thereafter. Is there a precedent for a country as strong as Iran willingly giving up a major weapons program where they weren't defeated in a war? That that hasn't happened. And they're not getting any military concession from the other side. This would seem to be somewhat of an unprecedented deal to me. Yeah, it's a little unusual. I mean, there are countries like Sweden and Australia that had nuclear weapons programs that at the end of the day decided they weren't worth finishing. Right, but they're no one's enemy is the thing. That's, yeah. yeah, that's true, right? Uh, that's why I say it's a weird case. I'd, I'd love to negotiate with them. <laughs> yeah, that way. Totally get down, easy, right? get down in Melbourne across a <laughs> across a table, stare him in the eye. Three hours later, go out for a beer. The closest you get is the South Africans, but you know, like we all know why the you know white apartheid government gave up their nuclear weapons. You know, they had no idea that Nelson Mandela was such a great guy, so they were terrified that you know they were gonna they were gonna democratize and 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 who knows who would get these weapons. So again, you know, I look at this deal like no deal is ever perfect. Usually deals like this don't work out, and that's because they're really hard. But, you know, compared to any other deal I've ever seen, like, this is kind of as good as it gets. Like, if you don't like this deal, you, you just, you kind of don't like deals. One last thing I want to ask you. So I have heard the criticism, this is a really good deal, dot, 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 for Iran. And you know what it is? Because Iran's giving up a hypothetical or a goal for some tangible things in the present. You can't ding the deal just on that. But it seems to me a really good deal for Iran. It's a good deal for Iran if you're that kind of Iranian. You know, if you're an Iranian who wants to see a country that's more integrated into the world, uh, you know, a country that's not, uh, you know, under the constant threat of military attack, then... Yeah, that works out. I think one of the things we forget, though, is that, you know, people sometimes disagree. Like there are there are people like in North Korea who like their current situation mm -hmm. as screwed up as that is precisely because they profit off the isolation. You know, they run the smuggling rings that break the sanctions. I don't know if you've I don't know if you like Camus. 
right? But in the plague, there's a there's a character who turns out he likes the plague because uh, it makes him rich and gets him out of a lot of trouble. So it's a good deal for Iran. I absolutely think so. But, you know, I think there are people in Iran who kind of like the confrontation. So I'm, I'm glad to marginalize them. Dropping a bomb of knowledge on us was uh, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. A lot of credentials. Check out his podcast. It's the Arms Control Wonk podcast. When does a new one post? It's coming out today on this very topic. This would be a good one to cover, I would say. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. Hey, my pleasure. You know, with international matters, delicate international matters, there's sometimes a razor's thin difference between getting it right and getting it wrong. And on this, I mean nuclear arms, we walk the razor's line. Now, in all those phrases, the assumption is that the razor is going to be sharp. But you know, I use a lot of razors, or I had been using razors in my life, and sometimes they get dull, and replacing them costs, well, a lot of money. You could buy a centrifuge with that money. There's basically nothing in life that's so illogical as how expensive razors are. Or should I say were, because of Harry's razors. Harry's was started by two guys who one day were talking about these exact issues, maybe without the overlay of nuclear arms negotiation. Maybe not. I don't know. They said, let's have a superior shave. They go, they buy a blade factory in Germany. It's already used to crafting the world's highest quality blades. They've done it for a century. They cut out the middleman. They're using podcasts like this so that we can and they can send Harry's to you and so that you can support the gist. The starter kit is 15 bucks. In fact, we'll give you $5 off your first purchase if you use the code GIST. So you get three blades, you get a razor, and you get to choose the shave cream or the foaming gel. It's a lot of stuff for 10 bucks if you use the code GIST. It's an entire month's worth of shaving. Here's what you do. You go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in my code GIST with your first purchase. You'll have delightful razors in your hands. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code GIST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. And now the spiel, debt be quite proud. So a few days ago, I said that economic policy really is so complex as to be beyond the ken of most voters. So we should regard fiscal policy as we do rocketry, leave it to the experts, but pick wise experts who have credibility on other issues, who have the endorsement of bona fide experts in the field of economics, and who don't spend too much time trying to tell us a story. Which brings us to a statement that Hillary Clinton made at a rally almost two weeks ago. Here's that statement. At the end of Bill Clinton's two terms, we had the longest peacetime expansion in American history with 22 million new jobs, a balanced budget, and a surplus that would have paid off our national debt if it had not been rudely interrupted by the next administration. Now, the details of this were poured over by the fact check industrial complex. I think it got two Pinocchios, a pants half on fire, four Hosannas, a cameo in the next Entourage movie, and a what what? So seriously, it did get two Pinocchios. The Washington Post said, you can't say things necessarily would have been so rosy under a Gore presidency. I mean, this is the sort of thing that requires a bit of retroactive forecasting of a future utopia or to some a hellscape. You need 3D glasses and a degree from the MIT Media Lab to even understand what the hell's going on here. But there is one phrase, one little phrase in there that I want to talk about. Would have paid off our national debt. We probably wouldn't have paid off our national debt, 
But my point is, we probably shouldn't have. As Vox's Matt Iglesias pointed out, getting rid of the national debt is not a good idea. And it also gets to my great displeasure at the worst ongoing analogy in American politics. The national economy is like your household economy. You don't want debt, we don't want debt. Just not true. One, you don't print money. Two, your neighbor on one side doesn't have a standing army. Two, your neighbor on the other side doesn't owe China 7% of his outstanding outlays. Oh, wait, your neighbor on the other side is 50 cent? Maybe he does. Anyway, the point isn't just one of scale, it's one of prudence. The U.S., any government not having debt would be a bad thing. Let me illustrate the point by telling you who else has debt. Almost every government in the world. Who is the boogeyman of U.S. debt? Like I said before, it was China, right? China owns so much of the United States. Well, China has $5 trillion worth of debt itself. Japan is $10 trillion worth of debt. That is 1.2 quadrillion yen. Germany, solid, stolid, don't mind if Greece is squalid. Germany has over $2 trillion worth of debt. Hey, you want to hear something cool? In euros, Germany's debt is at 1.999 trillion euros. It's scheduled to hit 2 trillion euros in about 10 days. Wait, you're saying that's not cool? Well, then you're the exact people I need to talk to. Debt is cool. Debt is good. Too much debt will stifle an economy. Servicing the debt takes up a lot of our payments. But having a debt allows a country, a rich country, any rich entity to build and grow and increase its wealth and help the lives of its people. Now, notice I said entity. Almost every company has debt. Apple has debt. Exxon has debt. Google has debt. Google has $60 billion in reserves. They have so much money, they don't know what to do, but they still have debt. Now, the Google example may not be applicable to what I'm talking here. There are a lot of international tax consequences driving that. But look at Amazon. Amazon has never had a surplus in 20 years. They never turned a profit. They know it's not worth it for them to turn a profit. Keep investing in what they have going. Be laden with debt. So what if the U.S. didn't have debt? Well, there was a small time period when this was true. A couple months, we think, during the administration of Andrew Jackson. And things weren't great. By the way, it was a stupid goal of Andrew Jackson to pay down the debt. Now, a lot of people say Andrew Jackson shouldn't be on the 20 because he was a slaver and he was nearly genocidal, if not actually genocidal, a killer of Native Americans. But he was also a fiscal idiot. He was wrong about the National Bank. His policies brought about a preventable depression. Having this guy on money is like having Pope Pius XI's picture on a condom wrapper. Anyway, if there was no debt, it would be a problem. Investors need the safety of U.S. treasuries to park money. Without the U.S. issuing debt, there'd be a run on foreign debt. The safety of investments would be weakened. And so much national innovation would be halted. Debt is not bad. It's not even a necessary evil. It's good. That if used profligately or if overused can hurt. I'm back to the contraception example. Same thing with that. The worst thing, analogizing the national economy with our household economy and its relationship to debt, it's not just misleading, it is ass backwards. The real analogy for debt or the way we think about debt should be how we think about debt in social settings, right? Think about the phrase, I'm in your debt. Because debt also means credit. When we give people credit, that's a good thing. Every time the U.S. sells treasuries and sells debt, it's giving someone some credit. Debt 
societally builds bonds. It provides ballast. When another member of a society extends a service or a favor to you, you're in that person's debt. That could be good for the social bond, could literally help you both. Now, if you get into too much debt with too many people, or if you fall too much in one person's debt, sure, that can be a problem. It's an instrument. It's a tool. It cuts both ways. But don't think about paying down the national debt as a goal that's worth pursuing. That could be a problem. A problem on the order of, say, discussing the delicate matter of protection during an intimate moment with Pope Pius XI there staring at you. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi's breakout time is 8 to 12 shakes of a lamb's tail. Joel Meyer's breakout time is anytime he can fire up the Atari and paddle some balls against layers of surprisingly forgiving digital bricks. Andy Bowers, executive producer, thought his breakout time was going to be when he was hired to play a wisecracking nerdy neighbor in an ABC sitcom. But the producers of Family Matters sensibly decided to go in another direction. The gist... The gist's breakout time was, like a lot of us, was between the ages of 12 and 17, especially after eating fried foods, or when the gist went off birth control, any situation of extreme stress, like the one time the gist thought Chad wasn't going to ask it to the big dance, but instead Iran almost acquired nuclear weapons. Don't look at me, I'm hideous! Thanks for listening.